0: Sleep, the image of Trudeau, and close up the Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick, or in the case of the novels, I'll I'll look at them uh, a little bit in each episode, a few chapters at a time. So in this particular episode, I'm going to be continuing my look at Philip K. Dick's 1960 novel, Vulcan's Hammer. So I urge you to go back and listen to my first episode on that, where I cover kind of the opening chapters and give some, some thematic context to the novel. Um, but just to sum up a bit of what I was saying then is this novel was published in 1960 at a time when Dick was really drifting away from writing science fiction. It, it kind of had ended his flurry of great science fiction novels of the mid-1950s. He wrote a series of good science fiction novels on metaphysical questions, such as Eye in the Sky and Time Out of the Joint, and even the Cosmic Puppets. And these, now this novel, along with another one, also published in 1960, called Dr. Futurity, which I also did a review on, were written way back in 1953. And for whatever reason, he couldn't get them published, or he didn't think they were worthy of publication, but they came out in 1960. It seems one of the reasons they come out is maybe he needed money. Um, maybe because he has he's not publishing much in the, between 1959 and 1962. The why and how of publication I'm not that sure of, but it is uh, clear that this is a turning point in Dick's career. This kind of puts an end of a of a chapter, his 1950s style, his kind of pulp era, and he's going to come back to, 19, to science fiction in 1963 with Game Players of Titan, and I suppose you could even count The Man in the High Castle as science fiction. And from there, he's going to write some of his greatest works, and about a dozen of them, or more than maybe 15 or so in a decade. So we got we got that to look forward to, but we need to kind of finish up this pulp era of the 1950s. And I think it's actually an interesting period in Dick's career because he's so interested in metaphysical, well, n- not exclusively interested in medical, meta- metaphysical issues. He's interested in, in material issues of kind of political dystopias and the way societies could be organized and the role of ideology and maintaining hierarchies. And he actually experimented with imagining many different political dystopias throughout the 1950s. And we've talked about those novels and other places in this podcast. Certainly, Vulcan's Hammer fits into this this tradition. So it's, it's, it sits more comfortably along works like Solar Lottery or The Man Who Japed or The World Jones Made than it does with The Man in the High Castle or even Time Out of a Joint. So I think we're doing this in chronological order of publication, even though it's kind of thematically and, and it just feels like it's an early 1950s work by, by Philip Dick. And a lot of the immaturity shows, certainly. It's, it's not the most well-constructed novel. A lot of it's very contrived. This was a problem Dick had in a lot of his early stories where characters are in places kind of illogically or just because they need to be there and and everything's not always explained very well but there are interesting things in this story and i I pointed out why i think the three most important things about vulcan's hammer are to readers who maybe approach this novel today one is the surveillance state the second is the question of of big data and the third is was a question of automation. In this case, we have particularly an automated government. So this is not original. At this point, Dick had written a story called uh, The Last of the Masters, which is about a computer or robot essentially running a government. And it's an anarchist society, but there are a few enclaves, or at least one enclave that we know of that's still run by a machine. And prior to some nuclear war, most of government functions were handed over to robots and machines and automated. And I think there's interesting questions to be had about you know, how much of our bureaucracy, how much of our decision making should we automate? Should we pass over to AI and to big data? Because on the one hand, you know, it may remove some biases. And certainly that's one of the things that might justify a system like you see in Vulcan's hammer is in a society like the United States, a lot of institutional racism and a lot of subjectivities that that lead to unfair and unjust applications of the law, perhaps something like uh, a greater degree of automation and surveillance would actually solve these problems and you know I, i've come to this point a few other times in in this series like in the man who japed for instance you have a surveillance state where everyone's moral lives are being observed and questions but it's it's sort of fair in a way because the observer they're called juveniles in that novel is neutral and they just record and so when people are accused publicly of being sinful of of breaking the moral code of the society It's it's kind of open and everyone is treated sort of fairly you may disagree with the law the way it's conceived in that society but it's it's presented kind of fairly because no one can escape the law and that's one of the benefits of the surveillance state right it's like law is applied fairly because everyone who does something wrong is caught in a way. Uh, So you can get rid of these institutional biases that exist, especially in the, the kind of institutions you see in the United States. And according to this novel, that's really how we get to unity is by accepting, you know, the guidance and the judgment call of machines who know much more than any of us. And there's actually a story that it written in the 1960s where Dick explores uh, kind of government-run machinery and big data in a little bit more detail, and that's called Holy Quarrel. And that's probably a better approach than Vulcan's Hammer, but Vulcan's Hammer, Vulcan's Hammer has a few virtues that we can identify. I don't want to defend it as a as a great novel. In fact, I think it's significantly weaker than Dr. Futurity, which is another maligned um, novel. But um, I just think from because of our current interest in... surveillance state and big data i think this is useful work to to glance at and think about so in the first part of the novel i looked at the first five chapters of the novel and first of all it's a very very short novel it's it's barely a novella actually it's it's just a little bit over 100 pages but in the first part of the novel we we see a bureaucrat an agent of the unity government killed by a mob, and the mob is led by a social movement called the Healers, who are anti-unity. Now, this society, Unity, is run by um, a computer called Vulcan's Vulcan Three, and it's a supercomputer that collects all this data and makes judgments. And then there are human beings who kind of implement the laws. So the bureaucracy, it's kind of the inverse of, of a democracy in a way, like in a democracy, human beings make the decisions, and then you have like institutions you know they're human beings in them but they're kind of run a bit like machines bureaucracies you know they run by law and, and policy and and rules like programming if you will that so that's that's kind of what we have in theory but what they have is the decisions are made by the big decisions and the kind of policy is made by the machine because they can collect all the data they're not it's not flawed in theory but the actual implementation of the law is done by party members who may have many of these subjectivities and have to make decisions and sometimes, you know, make decisions without full knowledge, not, this, not the knowledge of uh, that Vulcan's, Vulcan 3 has, for instance. Now, in the first part of the novel, we meet uh, a, a young girl named Marion Fields, who is at school and her teacher is a woman named Agnes Parker and she's asked the hard questions of her teacher and the teacher is very upset about this because it's a very ideologically unified society and so troublemaking and students are a big headache for teachers like this uh, now that one of the big heads within the unity government dill comes to visit the classroom and he basically takes mary and fields away to the joy of the teacher who did not like this girl at all and didn't like her asking tough questions he takes her off and questions her dill this government agent takes this girl Marion and, and begins to question her and what he's after is Marion's father a man named father fields and he's the supposed runner of this healer's movement and basically he wants to find out about him now fields is a very important character because he's one of the few people maybe one of the only people who has gone through this corrective procedure that they have this ideological corrective procedure which is essentially psychotherapy if people don't fit into unity they're deemed mentally ill and then sent for psychological training and and reconditioning he was not affected by that and that was kind of notable and then he escaped and now the government doesn't know where he is while he's being questioned there's vulcan 2 is destroyed now vulcan 2 is an old supercomputer the kind of the actually built before the war that the war led humanity to decide Vulcan 3 should run things. But Vulcan 2 was a supercomputer that existed before it. And it, it was kind of in a museum, but it still ran. And this director, still kind of consulted Vulcan 2 from time to time. It's destroyed. And he assumes it's by either unity agents working within, or sorry, healer agents working within unity, or maybe that unity has been corrupted, or somehow the healers got to Vulcan 2. But he assumes the healers are involved. Now, at the same time, there's another... Subplot with a man named William Barris who's a government agent who is kind of meets the wife of the man Arthur Pitt the one who's killed and by the mob early in the story and he learns that loyalty to unity is weak among some people Rachel Pitt his wife very much resents her husband's death and wants to get revenge and actually seems to wish for unity to or wishes for the healers to win. Barris worried about this, eventually submits questions to Vulcan 3 about why aren't you doing something about the healer's movement? Because Vulcan 3 apparently had been silent on this issue. It creates policy for so many things, but not as a way to address this healer movement. So that's the setup for for the novel and allows us to go into kind of the second, I'll look at the second, third of the novel today. And then in the next episode, I'll look at the final section of the novel and, and give some my thoughts on the themes. And ideas and the relevance of this story. So we'll pick up with chapter six. Oh, one more thing. At the end of chapter five, this Agnes Parker, this teacher is killed by some automated device, and it's not clear why. And that's where we pick up with chapter six. Jason Dill, this director of Unity, the one who just found out that Vulcan 2 was destroyed, finds out that Agnes Parker has been killed. And she's just a teacher, but she was notable because she was teaching Marion Fields. And so he's worried that maybe Marion Fields is at at risk, her life's at risk by whoever did the killing. So he orders a change in Marion Fields' guards, basically to protect her. Or maybe if Marion Fields has something to do with this, maybe it would, you know, keep an eye on her. But Dill's mostly worried that Parker's murder is evidence that the healers have an even more effective organization than he thought. And he he should already be pretty clear about this if he believes Vulcan too was utterly destroyed by the healer's movement. It would have taken a lot of organization and infiltration and, and technology and things to do that. So he calls up Larson. Now, Larson is like the computer programmer for Vulcan 3. He's, he's like the, or maybe not really the programmer because Vulcan 3 is already programmed, but like the administrator, he's the one who kind of manages the interactions between Vulcan 3 and and the agents and the government. And so she, he calls him up and says that they need to begin to prepare some questions for Vulcan 3. Now, this is something that's already been going on. Other agents have been doing this, and we've seen Barris already submit some questions. Dill got these and didn't like them, and, and so actually destroyed them. But at this point, Dill realizes that it's very important to, to basically get Vulcan 3's opinion about these threats and these dangers. Larson updates him on Barris's investigation and he shows him a letter accusing barris written by arthur pitt's widow it's not really clear why she is attacking barris barris had come kind of in good nature with a good heart to talk to the widow of pitt but the entire conversation was very hostile and nasty and you know it's it's not entirely clear why this letter was written her motives are not clear but this letter exists and is a problem for a bureaucracy to deal with, right? It's, it's like a formal complaint, it's like a sexual harassment complaint, right? Whether it's true or not, it has to be dealt with in some way. Otherwise, that opens you up to other legal problems. It's kind of like the problem of bureaucracy here. So, Barris, meanwhile, Barris finds out that his, the questions he submitted to Vulcan 3 were returned and rejected personally by Jason Dill. So, he's very upset by this and he tries to contact Dill personally and directly. And when his efforts at this fail, he books a ship to Geneva in order to meet Dill personally. And Geneva is where Unity rests and where Vulcan 3 sits. So he wants to meet Dill personally right in the capital. On the trip, Barris worries about his that his meeting will be seen as a power play. He still has doubts whether he should approach Dill or pursue this or pursue his questions with Vulcan 3 as his ship lands. And at the terminal, Barris is met by none other than rachel pitt rachel pitt of course being the the widow the one who wrote the nasty nasty letter so rachel pitt tells him that she was recently arrested and that barris would profit by spending just a half an hour with her to talk with her so she shows him a letter that she was accused of writing and she denies having written the letter so that letter that dill saw before apparently was a fake And very intrigued by this Barris hails a taxi and directs it to find a hotel where he'll sit down and talk with rachel pitt about what's going on now once again with what happened to rachel pitt we see again the connection between social deviance and psychotherapy here instead of being put in jail permanently she was subjected to two days of what they call it psychotherapy compulsive psychotherapy for two days before she could go home this This is not the first time Dick has done this. It's a theme in Man Who Japed 2, that people who can't fit into society need to go to mental health resorts. And they're often in the off-world colonies. Now, some people who can never assimilate into the society are are sent there permanently. Here you have the institutions of mental health care out there in society taking in criminals and social deviants and people who are ideologically nonconformist and then the idea is that they're mentally ill and so you fix them so the subjectivity of mental illness is something dick's starting to get at a little bit in this work it's something he's going to do a lot in the 1960s and a lot of his stories especially like the clans of the elfane moon that's a big one you have a lot of that in we can build you so there's a lot of stories coming up in which he's going to play with this idea of psychotherapy as a form of ideological control or that the mentally ill aren't really mentally ill that, you know, I guess the big idea in the 60s and 50s and 60s was that mental illness is socially constructed, you know, and that, that you know, there were people who criticize the institutions, but others like the asylum, Irving Goffman, but there are others who criticize the entire idea of mental illness as a real thing, instead saying people just are living within a mentally ill, society, like the society itself is mentally ill, not individuals within it. So I think Dick is somewhere in that, debate and in those ideas and he's attuned to them a little bit you know or at least he's he's part of a context of a social context that's questioning mental health the practice of mental health so then we go to chapter seven and in chapter seven we can finally see vulcan three so we're we're almost halfway into the novel and already and we get to see vulcan three for the first time so jason dill is going down to visit it vulcan 3 exists in an underground chamber and it expands at an autonomous rate it's got all its own robots to expand it grows it can develop itself it can add more circuits and add more size to itself and vulcan 3 is constantly using these robots and machines to dig for itself larger spaces underground so no one really knows how large it is and it's extremely huge and costly it's maintenance cost alone cover about 40 percent of the entire taxes collected by the unity world government so it's just a massive undertaking but you know it takes care of all these government functions as well so it's it's not it's not just that this computer costs that much it's vulcan 3 is actually a whole structure of you know of technology a whole technological system really so it's a huge part of the government budget Vulcan 3 begins to talk to Dill when he comes in and he asks about the results of the educational bias survey. And this is, I guess, whatever Vulcan 3 had asked Dill to do prior to this. Now, Dill by this point thinks the healers are a much bigger problem than bias within education. But this again was what Vulcan 3 asked him to investigate. But, you know, Now, the, the the interesting thing here is it's about big data in a way. Because as Vulcan 3 gets big data fed into its circuits or whatever it identifies threats and dangers and anxieties and then sends people to fix that or investigate them those are things that people might not see as important but if you have access to big data and you can see it all in front of you you might identify that as as a problem right so maybe there's a big deep underlying problem in education that needs to be fixed that's much more important than the healer movement but because the average human can't process data and just sees kind of what's in front of their face they don't understand that Significance of these? Well, Dill's response to this is he's a bit annoyed, but he says there'll be results f- soon. But the computer is very impatient. It wants these results. It senses that people are, and this is this getting from big data. It senses that people are impatient with social stability, and he's worried that a nuclear gestalt will emerge. Vulcan Three suggests that Dill has been failing in reporting all that's going on in society to him. Dill basically accusing him of keeping information from him. And, and Vulcan 3 doesn't work if it doesn't have all the information. The whole idea of it is based on the presumption that all data, all information comes into the computer. Dill leaves the chamber to go get a drink um, after this frustrating conversation with Vulcan 3. Meanwhile, Bears arrives at a hotel. Rachel Pitt explains the details of her arrest by unity. And at the hotel, Bears is introduced to also to Father Fields. So then we go to chapter eight, and here we get Fields' report on the, his perspective on the healers' movement and unity, and, and we start to get actually in a window into the ideology of this movement of resistance against unity. Fields tells Bears that unity is on the verge of collapse. Fields denies that the healers were involved in Arthur Pitt's death, though, and challenges Bears on unity's tax collection procedures and other policies which inspire popular hostility with the government. Which, of course, undermines the entire idea of unity. The idea of unity is this homogenous, you know, political loyalty that ties everyone together because everyone realizes that, uni- that Vulcan 3 makes the best decisions for everyone. But yet there's still resentment in society, and it's something that maybe the bureaucrats don't see. But people like Father Fields at the grassroots notices it and sees it too much. Now, Fields seems to think that Barris is sympathetic to some healer positions and actually openly tries to recruit him into their movement. And while that's happening, a metal device fires into the room, damaging Rachel Pitt, putting her into a catatonic state. Barris has the wo- wounded woman shuttled to, a, to his jurisdiction in North America, where he hopes he can save her life. He realizes now that the truth of the letter accusing him of being part of the healer's movement is irrelevant since he has met with the leader of the movement and now at this point will be considered guilty. They can't hide it, especially not in a system of total surveillance. So him just sitting down with Father Fields is enough for him to be accused of being, you know, part of of the movement. So, bear. Barris, after dealing with Rachel Pitt and, you know, sending her off where she can be treated, Barris barges into Jason Dill's office and accuses him of routing information away from Vulcan 3, which is something that's already been suggested both by Vulcan 3 and it's been implied by Barris and others that some information is being kept from Vulcan 3, at least as far as the healers' movement is concerned. Otherwise, why wouldn't Vulcan 3 be doing something about the healers? So both level threats at each other. Barris finally mentions the attack on the hotel and the the attempt to assassinate Rachel Pitt and him. And Dill says he didn't order the attack or didn't know about it. So at this news, Dill confesses that the same force behind the attack that killed the teacher, Agnes Parker, and probably is the one who tried to kill Rachel Pitt and maybe the one who Tried to destroy Vulcan 2 is the real enemy they are facing. But that enemy is not it's not clear who it is. Is it the healers? Is it some other force within the government? That is is basically unknown. Jason Dill, though, does identify it as a third force. He says a third force is operating on us. It may get all of us. It appears to be very strong. So Chapter 9. In his office, Jason Dill is preparing a legal statement in case his collaboration with Barris goes wrong and he wants to protect himself and his job and and his position and all that. So he goes to meet with Barris and Dill shows him some warnings he had received from Vulcan 2, recommending that information about the healer movement not be sent to Vulcan 3. And now we learn a little bit more of what's actually going on behind the scenes why Dill was keeping information from Vulcan three. And it was specifically because he was ordered to or suggested to do that by Vulcan two. Unfortunately, well, Dill explains that he trusts Vulcan two and Vulcan two was suggesting or beginning to suggest that Vulcan three was becoming dangerous and therefore preventing it from getting information would be in the best interest of unity. Unfortunately, Vulcan 2 was so thoroughly destroyed in the attack that they have been unable to learn more about why Vulcan 2 was fearful of the healer's movement or fearful of, of Vulcan 3. What was he, what was it, I should say, what was it anxious about? Barris volunteers to use his skill to analyze the remains of Vulcan 2. And these are then delivered to New York where Barris can get a better look at them. He then travels to Colorado, to visit the recuperating Rachel Pitt. She shows him and talks to him about how the healers have salvaged the device that attacked them in the hotel. And she also shows him that it is in contact with someone, that it's, it's in the grid. It, it's actually communicating with the outside world in some way, that it's part of an integrated system. And if that sounds familiar, well, it should, because Vulcan 3 is an integrated system which has all sorts of powers and technologies connected to it both of surveillance and perhaps of offensive capabilities as well so barris is back uh working on trying to repair the remnants of vulcan three now meanwhile the healers movement is growing um, especially around chicago and there's more uprisings and protests and in violence associated with the healer movement Barris, meanwhile is working on these these kind of whatever he was able to salvage from vulcan two the things that dill wasn't able to analyze but he thinks he can and he has a group of people helping him and they're able to restore enough of the memory tapes in Vulcan 2's banks and Vulcan 2's memories then are analyzed and, re- and examined. And they show that Vulcan, that it was worried that Vulcan three was becoming less rational and increasingly paranoid, which of course you might say, well, of course uh, surveillance state is by nature paranoid. You're only watching everyone and keeping tracks of everyone. And, you know, if you're paranoid, this is something Dick makes very clear in Eye in the Sky, that a total surveillance state is by nature paranoid. So you can listen, I think it's part five of my review of Eye in the Sky, talks about his, you know, he, how he associates surveillance and, and you know, kind of an observ- observatory state with, with overall paranoia. So Vulcan 3, it seems was the agent that attacked Vulcan 2 and it attacked Vulcan 2 when it realized that Vulcan 2 was in some kind of conspiracy with Dill against it it then used its mobile data collecting units to collect information on its own rather than relying on Dill and his agents so it, it sent out these kind of spies these robotic spies around it learned for instance that Father Fields was its enemy it was also responsible for the death of the schoolteacher most likely, probably the assassination attempt of, of Rachel Pitt and others so it starts to actually seek out his enemies and, and target them. I guess well, I think it's in the Marvel movie, right? Uh, Captain America: Winter Soldier where they have those big flying aircraft carriers and they can be programmed to target all of the kind of bad guys in society, right? And one swipe get them all it's kind of like dick's sort of on that page with vulcan 3 vulcan 3 is trying to use its automated surveillance abilities to knock out all its enemies as quickly as possible and that was what that device that rachel pitt collected after the attack and what the healers collected after the attack is apparently so apparently with vulcan 3 going crazy, going insane, Barris contacts Jill directly to report on his findings. Dill tells Barris that he needs to return to Geneva to testify in his behalf. Vulcan 3 has called a meeting of all the directors basically as a disciplinary effort or to ensure control. So Barris escapes to a ship in the middle of a major healer offensive against unity to try to reach Geneva to bail out and save Dill from whatever's going on in Geneva. So that's I guess that that gets us two thirds through the novel, so there's only four chapters left, and there's there's not that much left to happen, just kind of the resolution of the plot. So I'll I'll do that in the next episode, and then I will talk about talk about some of the themes I think that that are relevant. Obviously, big data, obviously the surveillance state. Um, some of the other Philip Dick themes aren't, aren't really here. This is a more focused novel. It's very plot heavy. It's you know, it is it is what it is anyway, so it, it won't take us long to to examine it, but, you know, there it is. Um Please, if you've read Vulcan's Hammer, please give me your own opinions on the novel. I know I'm probably missing a lot. I know I'm probably wrong about much of this, misinterpreting things. So if you have your own feelings about this, please uh, leave your comments below or write me an email at 100pagescast.gmail.com. And I'll be back next time with my finale, my final comments on Vulcan's hammer and and a thematic summary of of this work so again thanks for listening and I'll see you next time my tired thoughts warm song. that dies that